Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. My guest today is Declan Walsh. Declan is the New York Times chief Africa correspondent based in Nairobi. He was reporting on the ground in Ethiopia when the Tigrayan forces took back control of the regional capital, Mekele. He's on the show today to talk about what he saw and where the conflict might head from here. Declan, welcome. It's my pleasure. So you arrived in in Mekele in in Tigray the day after elections uh, started in Ethiopia, the national elections. Of course, they didn't take place in Tigray. At this point, the federal government still had control of Mekele. What was the state of the town and the state of the war when, when you arrived? Well, the government was still in control of the city. Um, but one of the things that immediately struck me was how few soldiers I saw on the streets and, in fact, uh, how light the security presence in general was. One of our first stops was the city's main hospital, the Eider Referral Hospital. And we had done some stories earlier in the year uh, where people had told us about how they had been victimized by Ethiopian soldiers at night during the curfew in the city. So I asked some of the doctors whether that was still a problem. And they said that, in fact, the problem now was a law and order problem in the city. For the most part, people were fearing the Ethiopian soldiers. It was more that because the police force had become so degraded in the city, you had a, you had a, you had a problem with people being stabbed and other regular crime incidents. And it turned out as we stayed there, we heard stories that police officers were starting to desert the city force and defect effectively to the, to the TDF, to the Tigrayans who were in the surrounding countryside. And we also heard that there were even young doctors at the same hospital who had left. So we we started getting an inkling of how the government's grip on the city itself was starting to loosen very much. Um, And then the following day, we drove out of the city through a checkpoint and very quickly found ourselves within territory that was controlled by the Tigrayan forces. And that territory was not so far from the city, within a 30-minute drive of the center of Mekele. Um, so immediately there, we had even more of a sense of how these Tigrayan forces were closer to the city than we imagined, and also were, if you like, more in control than we'd understood. You know, we've had very few glimpses into the rebel-held uh, side of things during this rather short war in Tigray. So what did that war look like outside of Mekele, behind rebel lines, so to speak? What was what was life like? What did the insurgency look like? It was a very fluid situation. Um, it turned out that just a couple of days before we made that trip, the Tigrayans had captured even some of the territory that we were in. So to give you a sense, the first thing we did was to go to this town called Samre. And there we met with Gitachu Reda, senior member of the TPLF, now the TDF, um, and spokesman. And so we started an interview with him in the back of a restaurant in this uh, otherwise deserted town that had recently been captured. Um, And as we were speaking to him, we were about halfway through the chat when suddenly we hear this eruption of cheering outside in the street. So everyone ran out to see what had happened. And outside you had all of these fighters clustered in the street. Uh, They started to cheer and they were pointing towards this puff of smoke in the sky. 
And then we saw a flash of flames and evidently an airplane had been hit and was um, plunging to the ground. We later went to the site of that crash. We found among the wreckage, um, you know, paperwork that said that it was a Hercules plane. And it was later identified as an Ethiopian military cargo plane that was shot down as it approached uh, Mekele. So that was the first sign, the first real sign for us that, you know, this war was moving faster than we thought. And then that same day, we went to a prisoner of war camp where we had been told there were several thousand Ethiopian soldiers being held. When we were told that by the Tigrayans, I frankly was a little skeptical at first about the numbers that they were giving of how many people they'd captured. Uh, But when we arrived there, it turned out that people told us that there were 3,000 people in this camp, and that certainly looked about right to me. There were thousands of ENDF soldiers recently captured gathered behind the barbed wire in this large compound. And they told us that they had just been captured in the previous couple of days. So in short, the picture in this area was kind of changing every day. It was clear that on the one hand, the Tigrayans had won these battles against the ENDF. I think faster than they themselves had anticipated, they found themselves with these large numbers of prisoners of war, and the battle was ongoing in the distance. And they told us that there were guns that they had captured from the ENDF. So they were using the Ethiopian guns effectively against against them. Did you get a sense of why uh, this was happening now? What, What sparked this offensive? Was it, first of all, an offensive maybe from the federal government side and then counteroffensive in which they unraveled? Or or why now, specifically in the war, was this sort of sudden turn of events? Well, according, of course, we couldn't ask the ENDF, apart from having spoken to a couple of officers who'd been captured. But from the Tigrayan perspective, they sort of attributed it to two things. They explained how their forces at the very beginning of the war had received a huge blow. Obviously, they had not anticipated that soldiers from Eritrea would enter the conflict. They hadn't anticipated that the artillery that they captured would be struck by these, what they described as drones, they believe come from the United Arab Emirates. So they sort of sketched it out for us that in the early stages of the conflict, they'd taken a big blow. They had very few fighters. But they said that during the spring, they had started, they had reorganized, they had uh, called their fighting force, the TDF, Tigray Defense Forces. Uh, They had divided into what they call four armies or perhaps large divisions. And they said that through the spring, first they'd been fighting in a guerrilla-style war with ambushes against Ethiopian and Eritrean conventional soldiers in these areas. But that, you know, around the middle of the spring, they had sort of retreated, if you like, or moved into what they called a sort of a defensive tactics where they weren't seeking to captured territory, but they were further reorganizing and absorbing a huge number of recruits that had come into the Tigrayan forces from across the region. And they were preparing to mount an offensive against the ENDF and against the Eritreans. But while they were still in this process, the Ethiopian election came along on June 21st. And they said that in the days before that election, the Ethiopians launched their own offensive against the Tigrayans, particularly in the central part of the region, in a region they refer to as Tembien. And 
They said that when this offensive started, the Tigrayans absorbed the news of the offensive, they held a meeting, and then they decided that they were going to launch a counteroffensive, even though they hadn't completed all of their own preparations. And that that was really the precipitating event that started off this quick succession of battles. And when we turned up by chance, we happened to be there just after the first of those battles had taken place. Did you get a sense that, you know, this this TDF was something that was growing by the day? Um, and, and when you talk to recruits and soldiers, uh, you know, w- w- what did they say was driving them to, to you know, go to the bush and, and, and join the resistance? Well, in, the, in, in those early uh, days when we were behind the TDF lines, if you like, and the fighting was still on, ongoing, one of the most striking sites, apart from these huge camps of prisoners of war, was the site of um, this huge column of new recruits to the TDF that just sort of came down the road towards us. I would say there were several thousand uh, young people, all unarmed at this point, who were being marched in a, in a column to a, a training center that was nearby. And there we saw young trainees um, receiving weapons instruction, but also receiving lectures, I think about Tigrayan nationalism mostly. And, and in some cases, actually, uh, some of they were performing dances or they were sort of people appeared to be bonding together. Um, and the people who I managed to speak to, uh, almost to a person actually, said that they had joined, volunteered for this force because their communities had been so badly hit by the atrocities that we've been hearing about through the spring that have accompanied this war. So people talked about how family members or people in their community had been killed by the uh, pro-government forces. Uh, the sexual assaults that people had suffered, um, the, the looting and the harassment of, of ordinary civilians. And so clearly some of the people who we saw, I suppose, were probably politically sympathetic to the TPLF, but many others said that they didn't come from a particularly politically motivated background in the past, but they f- were outraged or angered by what they'd seen happening in the course of the war against civilians. Um, and sort of said that they were putting politics aside and that they, you know, they felt that war was no longer against the TPLF, but it was against their communities. And they saw this essentially as a fight for survival. And is the TDF basically a rebranded TPLF or, or what's the difference? That's an excellent question. Uh, they, they say that they are not, but of course it is unmistakable that the <laughs> that many of the leaders of the, the leader of the TGF is the same as Debrecion Gabriel Michael, the same who, who also leads the TPLF. Um, similarly, with figures like Katachi Reda, and of course you have within the senior leadership of the TDF people who are former TPLF leaders. You have people like Gitachu Asefa, the, the former spy chief of Ethiopia. But you do also have within their ranks people who had split from the TPLF or who were not necessarily active TPLF members at the time. You also have within the ranks people from other Tigrayan parties, like the Tigray Independence Party, for instance. Um, so it's clear that it is not just the TPLF, and many people were at pains to say that, but it is also unmistakable that the TPLF is providing the political leadership uh, for this group and that many of its lead, you know, there's a common, many of its leaders are also in the TDF. Um, And I think that probably begs a question for what will happen 
politically speaking, in Tigray beyond the war, whatever this war holds or however it concludes um, for what the, you know, the future shape of the TPLF will look like. Mm. And just, I, I think just one more question before we move on uh, to, to some of these other topics. We've talked a lot on the podcast, of course, about the, the regional implications of the war. Um, and, I you know, there's been a lot of speculation about whether the TDF or TPLF has has managed to get any foreign backing or any foreign supplies. Did you see any evidence, um, especially when it comes to arms or ammunition, that that they you know had received any supplies from the outside? No, I mean I asked them about that, and they said that they had not. But I suppose that's probably the sort of answer you would expect to hear, whatever the truth of the matter. Um, they said that most of the weapons that they were using, certainly the artillery and the heavy guns, were weapons that they'd captured from the ENDF, from the Ethiopian National Defense Forces. You know, the, the only other thing that was noteworthy was that a lot of the commanders appeared to have satellite phones, so they certainly had a communication system, despite the efforts of the government, I think, to prevent that kind of equipment from entering the region. Um, and after that plane was shot down, I asked them what they'd used to carry out that attack. Um, they identified a particular kind of Russian surface-to-air missile system they said had been used, and they said that this was a system that they had captured again from the ENDF in the course of the fighting. And did you see underage child soldiers um, on, on either side when you were there? I saw people who appeared to be underage on both sides of the conflict. Um, I saw combatants in the TDF ranks who certainly appeared to be teenagers and may well have been under 18. And I also saw captured combatants in the Ethiopian POW camps who also looked like they were underage. But, you know, it's, it's really hard to say for sure. And I would say that the image that's been portrayed by some people on social media in recent days, especially on the government side, uh, of what they're calling a drugged up, conscripted army of child soldiers inside Tigray is inaccurate. Um, I've covered a lot of wars with child soldiers in places like Sierra Leone or Liberia. Um, and I can tell you, this was not that. Did you come across the Eritrean Defense Forces uh, during your trip? No, they had um, vacated the areas that we were in before we got there. So the sequence of events as we understood it was that the air trains had left these areas. Uh, the uh, ENDF came in and took up those positions. And that was the prelude to this sort of exchange of offensives, first by the ENDF and then in response by the TDF. Hi, everyone. We will be back in a moment, but first a message from our friends at Foreign Policy. Could empowering women in the workplace be the simplest way to boost the global economy? The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is a new limited series podcast from Foreign Policy. Host Rina Nainan talks to women around the world in places like Kenya, Nigeria, and India, who are changing the status quo in surprising ways. Listen to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, there's been a lot of concern, and, and we've talked about it on the podcast, about the humanitarian situation 
Integrae, especially related to food insecurity and, of course, concerns of famine. What did you see when you were there? Did you see, you know, hunger stalking the land? What Was there visible evidence of this? We interviewed a lot of people who explained to us what precarious circumstances they were in. So, for instance, in some of these TDF areas, I interviewed people who explained to me that, you know, ENDF or Eritrean troops had uh, stolen their their stores of grain, they had destroyed their crops, they had destroyed their agricultural implements, and therefore taken away their ability to plant uh, a new crop for this for the for the coming harvest. And they said that they were basically hanging on by a thread, you know, dependent on international aid groups and their ability to get to those areas and bring uh, deliveries of relief aid, sometimes once a month or whatever it might have been. Um, so we, we we met a lot of people who explained just how precarious it was. But I would stress, I guess, that when we were in these areas, you know, these were areas where there had just been a fight. We were, you know, driving around, going to the prisoner of war camps, um, you know, trying to move pretty fast, sometimes over over long distances. So we weren't really in a position to sort of dig into some of these communities and really look for the most vulnerable people who may be affected by these shortages. And I've, I've no doubt some of those were, were there. Um, and of course, we were only in one small part of the, of the region. And I think, you know, the main message I got from aid workers is how difficult it's been even to get an accurate assessment of the conditions in many parts of Tigray because access was so difficult. Uh, when the ENDF and the Eritrean troops were there, uh, aid workers told us about how they would get to checkpoints and they just didn't know if they would be allowed to cross from one day to another or from one week to another. So that made it very difficult to have a predictable delivery of relief aid to some of these more vulnerable far-flung parts of the region. Um, And if you look at the the figures that the UN has just released recently, I think they said that 30% of Tigray was accessible to their agencies um, as recently as May. And now that figure is somewhere in the order of 70% right now. Mm. And the the area you were in, was it receiving any humanitarian aid uh, by the time you arrived there? Yeah, it had received, a, it, it certainly was receiving some. Uh, we passed a vehicle from Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, when we were driving towards this area. I believe the Red Cross, the ICRC, had also been to that area. So it was not an easy place to reach, uh, but some of the uh, big international agencies, including the UN, had reached it. Okay. And was there any sign of Ethiopian government humanitarian assistance reaching these areas? Yes, there was a, a distribution of some humanitarian aid from the um, transitional or from the interim authorities while we were there. Um, as, as I recall, it was sacks of fertilizer that were being distributed. Now, you know, you've described a you know, real whirlwind of events uh, when you arrived and then going, you know, from Mekele into the TDF held areas. And then, of course, uh, the TDF captured Mekele. Um, When did you realize that Mekele was going to fall? And and, and how did you witness that? Well, I think the first uh, hint was the the, uh, cutting off of the internet. And (laughs) I'll admit to our own shame, we didn't quite understand why that was happening. And that was on the Saturday morning, I remember the internet went down. And then by sun by Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, there were signs, some other further hints that things were afoot. We heard that some of the provincial officials had started to 
leave the city. It wasn't clear why. And then the following day on the Monday, which was the day that we now know that the Ethiopian military left the city, very early on there were these uh, stories that vehicles were being commandeered by Ethiopian military troops who were trying to leave the city and taking four-wheel drives so we had to put a take our own the vehicle we were hiring we had to kind of put it into hiding for a few hours lest it should be seized by the soldiers um and then i went to the headquarters of the regional authorities to see who was there and i found myself in this um, deserted building i walked all the way to the I think the fourth floor where the interim president and the military commander had their offices, uh, they were closed. There was nobody there. Um, and when I looked out the window, I could see these federal police officers gathered around a bus and throwing their backpacks into the back of the bus. So it became clear that they were they were leaving. L- later on, we heard we learned, of course, that some of the departing Ethiopian soldiers um, stormed into the offices of two UN agencies, UNICEF and the World Food Programme, and uh, took away their VSATs, the, the satellite equipment that they have that allowed them to have a, an internet connection with the outside world. Um, so there was this very strange period on the Monday where nobody seemed to be sure what was happening. Uh, the Ethiopian soldiers appeared to have vanished into thin air. There was talk about some fighting taking place on the edge of the city. And then by sort of after dusk, early evening, we saw these sort of victory parades start through the center of Mekele, uh, where mostly actually very few TDF fighters at that point, mostly local people who realized what had happened and they felt bold enough to venture out onto the streets and immediately sort of erupted into these raucous celebrations um, at the departure of the Ethiopians and really setting the stage for the arrival en masse of the of the Tigrayan fighters. And and what did the Tigrayan fighters do when they when they arrived back to you know what had been their their capital until recently? There was a festive atmosphere that went on for several days. I mean, there were just celebrations in the streets. There was constant. Um, tooting of horns, uh, residents of the city flooded onto the pavements. Uh, there were these sort of victory parades through the city with these columns of Tigrayan fighters who'd come in from the countryside. I would say on the part of the residents of the city, there was this palpable sense of relief and joy. Um, and frankly, I think people were, you know, people did not expect the city to fall that quickly or so suddenly. If you cycle back a couple of days when we had been with the TDF leaders uh, interviewing them, they were listing their victories as they described them. And I said, well, does this mean you're going to try to take Michele? And he said, no, we're not. He, He made it clear that they didn't, at least they didn't give the impression that they thought that that was something that was immediately achievable to them. So I think they were surprised at how quickly uh, the city fell. And I think that also accounts for that odd gap where the Ethiopian soldiers left. And it took a while, frankly, it took several hours or even half a day before the Tigrayans arrived in any great numbers. Hmm. And you talked to prisoners of of war that were, were captured from the ENDF side Interviewing POWs can always be a, a complicated affair in the conflict zone. Did you did you feel like you were able to get a sense of what the the state of mind of the fighters fighting on the Ethiopian federal government side has been from your conversations? Yeah, I mean, we were very sensitive to the idea that it's unusual to interview a prisoner of war, and anybody who we spoke with 
you know, we uh, preface the conversation by making it clear to them that they were under no obligation to speak to us and that we were reporters. Anyone who spoke to us said that they were doing so of their own um, of their own volition. And probably the most revealing conversation I had was with um, a senior officer, the, one of the division commanders of, I think it was the 11th Infantry Division. He gave his consent for the interview. I told him he was under no obligation. Um, and he really wanted, seemed to want anyway, to, to, to open up to talk about how the, this campaign had fallen apart on his side. And he was also, I felt, unusually critical of, well, you know, he, he talked about politicians on all sides, but clearly that included his own commanders in the in the, in the Ethiopian government. Um, and he spoke of his disillusionment with the fight. Um, he talked about how some of the officers, including himself, were very unhappy by the prominent Eritrean role in the in the fighting, and you know felt that this was a political conflict that had spilled into an unnecessary war, as he described it. You know, since the beginning of this war, the accounts of atrocities have really just been quite uh, remarkable. Did you get any sense of what's driving that on the ground? I mean, what you know, what's driving what what just looks like cruelty in in many instances very hard to get into the minds of the people who were uh, carrying out these kind of atrocities. At, at one point, we went to the, um, there's a center at the Eider Hospital where victims of um, sexual abuse or sexual assault, rather, have, have been treated. Um, and, you know, some of the stories you hear from uh, people who have survived those assaults or from the staff who've treated them, you know, really speak to some um, incredibly cruel and, and, and shocking behavior. And again, it seems that attacks and the knowledge of these attacks in the Tigrayan community seem to have played a significant role in mobilizing people behind the behind the TDF. Now, to turn ahead towards, you know, the current situation and what's coming in the future, you had a chance to talk a lot with the Tigrayan leadership while you were there. Um, you know, there was obviously some hope that after the TDF recaptured Mekele, that maybe there was some opening towards a ceasefire, but that hasn't obviously occurred. From your conversations with them, what's, you know, what's their objective? And, and do you see them just continuing to fight on? And, and, you know, what are they trying to achieve? They seem to have a number of layers of objectives, if you, if you like. As they said, it, their immediate objective was to expand is to expel all of the outside forces from Tigrayan territory, effectively to return to the status quo on November 3rd. So they said that they would expel the Eritreans who had now retreated to the northern part of Tigray. They would expel Amhara fighters from western Tigray and they would consolidate their own control over the rest of the province or the rest of the region. at that point, they seem to be indicating that militarily they would be pushing towards the Sudanese border to try and open up a route into Sudan, a supply route, because, of course, right now they are surrounded pretty much on all sides. Um, but as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, instead, a lot of the fighting now seems to be pushing in the other direction to the east and to the southeast into a far province. So that's on the on the military side. On the political side, of course, there's this 
notion of where politically Tigray goes uh, if, if they manage to hold on to the military gains that they've made. TDF leaders that I spoke with acknowledge this huge groundswell for Tigrayan independence that you heard on the streets from ordinary residents in Mekele, but also from fighters among their ranks. And they were certainly acknowledging the strength of feeling. They indicated that if there was not a change of leadership in Addis Ababa, that they saw that it was inevitable uh, that the region would head in the in the direction of independence. But, you know, in long conversations with some of them, you know, they also made it clear that they understood that, you know, independence for Tigray is a very tall order. It is it's a landlocked uh, territory currently surrounded by hostile forces. Very hard to see how it would become an independent country. They talked about they they said we don't want to become like Somaliland, that if they were to go the independence route, that they would need to hold a referendum and strive for um, international recognition and so on. But my sense, and this was sort of what I got from reading between the lines as much as what people said directly, my sense was that, you know, they they are talking about independence because this is, um, you know, this notion, this Tigrayan um, nationalism is something that's really motivated the public behind them in Tigray to, to, to fight this war and to win some of these battles. Um, but they also know that it's a, it, it's, it's a tall order. And, um, you know, many of them indicated that as well as opening up supply routes and retaking control of this land, I think they're also trying to um, exert pressure on the government in Addis Ababa they see, obviously, Abiy Ahmed as a huge part of the problem. And it seemed to me that um, at least some of their tactics, and I think this is what we see happening in Afar at the moment, are designed to uh, increase the pressure on Abiy Ahmed's government and perhaps push towards some sort of change in Addis that might make a future uh, uh, negotiated settlement possible. Hmm. And did you hear anything that would lead you to believe while you were there that they might turn their sights on Asmara and, you know, President Isaias Afreki instead of just internally within Ethiopia? Yes, I, I heard the same things that were reported elsewhere. I had leaders who said that if necessary, we will fight, we will go as far as Asmara. I also spoke to leaders, though, who said, well, you know, maybe that's a job for the Eritrean people. So I heard, I heard conflicting reports on that front. But I think what there certainly was uh, in common to all of these leaders was a recognition that, you know, a hostile Eritrea was a problem for Tigray, no matter what, and that this was a problem that in some shape or form, they would have to tackle and resolve, at least in their own terms. You know, since you've left on the Ethiopian government side, on the federal government side, what has your reporting shown, you know, the approach that they've taken since they lost Mekele? There's obviously been concern about a you know, a sort of siege situation towards the entire region. What what have you seen? Yeah, I've been speaking to some people just in the last couple of days, actually. Um, and it seems that there's a very uh, grave situation developing on the humanitarian front inside Tigray that's related to, to access from the outside. As I said earlier, um, you know, the problem before was that aid groups couldn't move around very easily inside Tigray. Now that a large part of the territory is controlled by one group, the issue is much less about access inside Tigray. And now it's all about access into Tigray from the outside. Now, the uh, Ethiopian government has stressed that it is 
helping the human or assisting and cooperating with the humanitarian operations. But the um, evidence from the ground um, suggests otherwise, frankly. Um, we've had uh, only one convoy, aid convoy, has managed to make the journey from Samara, the capital of a far province, into Tigray in the last number of weeks because the second convoy that tried to make that journey was attacked by an unidentified militia and forced to turn back. Um, since then, the um, UN, I think, has built up about 200 trucks uh, filled with relief aid that is that are waiting to make that journey into Tigray. They've not been able to make it yet for, for, for security reasons. Um, and by the same token, air access is largely cut off. There has been uh, a handful of UN flights that have been allowed into Tigray. Um, but uh, by several accounts, uh, during the last uh, flight, I think it was last Thursday, aid workers and UN officials who were traveling to Tigray were subjected to extensive searches at the main airport in Addis Ababa. Um, they had things like personal medication confiscated from them or they were forced to leave it behind. Um, they also were the Ethiopian officials told them they weren't allowed to bring more than the equivalent of, I think, about $230 in cash. So aid agencies are saying that it's almost impossible to get extra food into Tigray right now. There are electricity shortages. There's very little cash in the region. Um, the communications are down. And so they're saying that even though they have greater access inside Tigray, they are unable to get enough food in, and they're also not able to get in the fuel, the cash, and the communications equipment to facilitate the distribution of the food they have. And it seems that certainly probably in the next week, unless something gives soon, see UN agencies and others starting to ration the distribution of food aid inside the region. All right, Declan, we're running out of time, and thanks for fielding so many questions from us. You mentioned earlier, of course, you know, that, that perhaps there's a, a recognition on the Tigrayan leadership side, there will be a need for conflict resolution at some point. Have you seen any sign either while you're in Tigray or, or afterwards in your conversations of a route to de-escalate this conflict, a route towards starting talks, either in your conversation with Tigrayan leadership or Ethiopian federal officials or outside diplomats? When you look at the situation on the ground for the last two or three weeks, I think the one constant is that events on the ground are actually moving faster than people's ability to formulate policy about Tigray. And what we see right now is, you know, a, a, a Tigrayan military force that is pushing outside of Tigray into Afar. And we see the Ethiopian government, having suffered these significant defeats to its conventional forces, mustering regional ethnic militias to go and take up the fight in, in Afar and also in Amhara. So everything that we see on the ground is pointing, unfortunately, to an escalation of the conflict. And I haven't heard much, frankly, on either side that suggests either side thinks this is a good moment to start talking. Thanks so much, Declan, for, for coming on our podcast. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for listening. We are going to be back in two weeks with a special summer series of The Horn. Stay tuned for more on that. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell, and this episode was produced by Maeve Francis and Ida Holinabi.